The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Well, if you have a Bible, I want you to open it, get your scriptures open, uh, or if it's an iPad or an iPhone or whatever device that you have, and let's turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. And we're going to finish the 26th chapter of Matthew, and the title of the message is, When Jesus Was Alone. And just before we pray, I want to say that if you were with us last week, we're, we're following Jesus now, obviously, in the last days of his earthly life and ministry, he's making his way now to the cross. And last week, we talked about the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus went in, and he wanted his disciples to pray with him but they fell asleep in an hour when he needed them the most. He was left alone, and in fact, they disappeared into the darkness of the night in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus was left alone. But in that aloneness, Jesus cried out to his Father. He prayed with his Father. He called on the name of the Father uh, to know exactly, to be reconfirmed three times. Father, is this the cup you have for me? Is this your purpose? Is this your will that I should go die on the cross as the substitute lamb of God for the sins of the world, that this would be the way for them to be saved? And it was confirmed three times. But I want you to think about Jesus was not alone. He was with his father, even in the garden of Gethsemane and that that time of intimacy. So we're living in a very unique time of history right now where everybody is being sheltered in their home and there's a lot of loneliness, a lot of isolation, a lot of feeling disconnected. I want you to know and think about as we pray and as we go through this time in Jesus' life, there was a lot of loneliness and solitude in the life of Jesus Christ. But it can be very meaningful if we turn and direct our attention, we're never alone. He said, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. So we have a very unique opportunity in this silence and solitude to call upon the name of the Lord and enter into a new intimacy with him. Well, let's bow our heads and pray and ask the Lord to speak to us. Gracious Heavenly Father, we welcome the Holy Spirit. And here we are, we call this uh, Maranatha Church at Home. And Lord, there are people that are in their homes, in their various rooms and apartments and condominiums and whatever situation they find themselves, and we're we're all scattered abroad. Uh, But Lord, you are with us. And you said that if even two or three gather together in your name, I am there in the midst. And even for those who are now watching by themselves, they are not alone. Father, you are with us. You have given to us your Holy Spirit. And therefore, we come together to hear the word of the Lord that we might open our spirit and our heart to hear what you would say to us, to give us a word of encouragement, a word of hope. Lord, a word that we will carry with us through this new month of May. And we commit all of these things into your hands in Jesus' mighty Wonderful name we pray and ask all of these things. And everyone said, amen. Amen. 
All right, Matthew chapter 26, and beginning in verses 57 through 63. So if you have your notes, uh, we're going to talk about, this is the first point we're looking at. Jesus teaches us about solitude and silence. So beginning in verse 57, we read, And those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard, and he went in and sat with the servants to the end. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward and said, this fellow said, uh, listen to that, not rabbi, not teacher, no term of respect, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said to him, do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. All right, let's stop there for just a moment as we tell the story and read it. And I want you to look at Jesus is teaching us about solitude and silence. Now he's in a moment where they're bringing false accusations against him. They've already determined that he is guilty. They have already determined that he will be put to death. Now they're just trying to find something to be able to accuse him with. It's interesting, they couldn't find anybody, and so they finally found a couple of guys that said, well, I heard he said this one time, destroy this temple. Oh, the temple of God. Surely you cannot speak against the temple of God. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. Now, Jesus was there, he did actually say those very words, but he was not talking about the physical temple, which had been building for over 46 years at that time, that it would be destroyed and rebuilt in three days. He spoke of the temple of his body. He was all the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in him bodily, and he, as the living temple of God, the living word of God, would be crucified, but on the third day, he would be resurrected, and that same body that had died would come back to life. That's what Jesus was saying. But notice he does not explain. He does not say, hey, you misinterpreted, you didn't understand, I had a spiritual meaning to that. He remains silent. Again, Jesus has at this moment been forsaken by his disciples. They have all fled into the darkness of the garden. And he is all alone. And I'm thinking for just a moment, we often miss the importance of Jesus' solitude and silence. And every one of us can learn something from Jesus about and an example of that if you want to be intimate with our Father who is in heaven, it requires there are going to be times in your life you need to get away from everybody else. You need to be silent. You need to go into his presence 
and you need to wait upon him and listen to him and spend time with him. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus had had deep prayer, deep communion, deep intimacy with his father. He was wrestling with a question about going forward with the cross, but he had his father, and there he was, and the disciples had all fallen asleep, but Jesus was not alone. He was conversing, he was communicating, he was talking, he was sharing with his father. And by the way, at the end, we know that he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. It was very traumatic. But at the end of that time of intimacy and prayer and communion between the Father and the Son, at the very end, Jesus stood up and he came and he found the disciples. They were all sleeping and he said, sleep on. Here comes the enemy. This is the hour and power of darkness. But he was saying, I'm ready. Because of the time that I spent in prayer, because I heard from my Father, Jesus was strengthened. He was confirmed. And that time of being alone with his Father and through prayer, he had confidence to go forward to the cross and all that he would suffer. suffer. We're going to read about that in just a moment. But throughout Jesus' life and ministry, he gave us an example Over and over again, when you read the Gospels, Jesus would withdraw from the crowds. Now, every time he did another miracle, there were bigger and bigger and bigger crowds and more and more people following him. And yet consistently, we read in the Gospels, and then Jesus withdrew himself from the multitude, or we go up onto a mountaintop to have time of intimacy and prayer and to be alone with his father, and every time he came back from that time of prayer, he had fresh direction, fresh vision. This is where the father said we need to go next, and it became such a beautiful example to the other disciples. They said, Lord, teach us to pray like you, and that's when Jesus pulled them aside and taught them the Lord's prayer kind of an outline, not just simply, you know, by rote, that simple little prayer that can be said in a couple of minutes, but it was an outline of spending time with the Lord and with our Father in heaven. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So I want you to think about where you're at right now in your life. We probably, because of our circumstances, We have a lot more solitude, a lot more silence, which is one of the major themes of the Gospels. And again, we're living in a unique time in history. In the Gospel of John, chapter 18, verse 11, so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? Jesus knew where he was going. He knew what he needed to do next. In the hour of crisis, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was strengthened, he was confirmed by praying and talking with his father. This is the will of my father. I must go forward, I must go to the cross, and this is the father's plan for the redemption of the world. Well, let's go to the next few verses, uh, 64 through 66, and let's go to our next life lesson here. Jesus affirms that he is the son of man the Messiah, beginning in verse 64. Jesus said to him, it is as you said. 
Remember that he had been asked, I adjure you, are you the Messiah? Are you the Messiah, the Son of God? And so Jesus responds to him and says, it is as you have said, nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying he has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered and they said, he is deserving of death. Wow, what in the world has just happened? Jesus is applying to himself. When he shares these words, you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds, sitting at the right hand of the power, and coming in the clouds of heaven. He's quoting a scripture. He's actually quoting a prophecy from the book of Daniel, from the prophet Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. It's a messianic passage. And it's literally a messianic passage about Jesus. So in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, this is what we read. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And the next verse, 14, and then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Powerful. The Son of Man coming in the clouds and the Ancient of Days, the, the majesty of God the Father gives to the Son of Man a kingdom which shall reign forever and ever and ever. Well, all of the Jewish people and those who looked at the scriptures said this is a prophecy from the prophet Daniel about the coming of the Messiah. Now, you and I might read it and say the Son of Man. And Son of Man may sound like an emphasis on Jesus' humanity. But I want you to know that it speaks also of his deity and of his exalted nature. This is the everlasting power, glory, kingdom of God coming in the clouds. Who came in the cloud? In the Old Testament, in the days of Moses to the children of Israel and manifest himself as a cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night. That was God. So the Son of Man... Yes, there is a human portion to his life and calling that goes from the seed of Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel, then the specific tribe of Judah, and then from the tribe of Judah to the family of David. Yes, man, fully man, but a special man, the son of man, who is also the son of God all of his glory and deity that is now come manifest in the flesh. Jesus said, yes, that is me. Well, the high priest obviously clearly understood the divine implication of this title, the son of man, quoting from Daniel the prophet. So he responds, this is blasphemy. 
He is claiming to be equal to God. And so they had him in their own eyes. The only problem was that what Jesus declared was true. He is the son of man. He is the son of God. He will come in the power and the glory and the kingdom and the clouds of God Almighty in the kingdom of heaven. So look with me at the next couple of verses and let's go to our next life lesson here. By his stripes we were healed. Look with me in verses 67 and 68. Because as they all were crying out, everybody there around the high priest agreed with him, oh, he's blaspheming, and therefore he is deserving of death. And how did they respond at that moment of Jesus' declaration of his true identity, son of man, son of God, the Messiah? It says in verse 67, and then they spat in his face and they beat him. And others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, prophesy to us, Messiah, who is the one who struck you now? You know, there's a scripture that Peter talks about because we're going to talk in just a moment about what happened to Jesus and as he was beaten for you and I. But in 1 Peter in the New Testament, and Peter is the one who is following Jesus from afar, But the Lord is going to redeem Peter and restore Peter and heal Peter. But he was there. Though he was following at a distance, Peter was witness to this whole situation happening with the Lord Jesus. And Peter writes this, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, by whose stripes you were healed. Not just by his stripes we are healed, but by his stripes, past tense, You were healed. What Jesus is about to do as he goes to the cross for you and me, literally paid for the sins of all humanity, for all time. Every sin was washed and cleansed. And therefore, while he was beaten with stripes, we were healed. While our sins are laid upon him, his righteousness is given to us. But let's go now to the scripture of Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6. And Isaiah was a prophet of ancient Israel. He lived approximately 700 years before Jesus was born. And there is no other prophet quite like Isaiah who was able to look seven centuries into the future and have such a clear, obviously divinely inspired prophetic vision and description of the Messiah who would come not only to save the Jewish people, but all the nations of the earth. He would come to be the savior of the world and all who would call upon the name of the Lord would be saved. But on Isaiah chapter 50, verse six, he's prophesying now about the Messiah. This is known as a messianic passage. It relates then to Jesus in this very hour we're looking at, and Jesus says, or this is Isaiah prophesying about Jesus. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. 
So I want you to think about this for a moment. What, what's happening right now to Jesus is, you know, he is being spit upon. This is the Messiah. This is the savior of the world. This is the one who said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass of going to the cross and being humiliated and taking the sins of the world upon me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And once they hear him declare and quote literally from Daniel chapter seven, a messianic passage, yes, I am the Messiah, I am the Son of Man, and I will come in the power and glory of God in the clouds from heaven to earth. They began to spit on him. Now, you know, spitting is one of the most disgusting things that a person can do. Uh, but when you spit on another human being, and by the way, in the Middle Eastern culture, that is a way that even to this day, uh, they will show absolute disdain for another person who does something wrong, who violates their traditions or their culture, and they will really go back and go deep and then they will spit upon a person. It's absolutely gross and disgusting. But they are showing their utter hatred, their utter disdain, their utter disgust. So the irony, that which is reserved for the most vulgar of people is now being cast upon him who knew no sin. The pure, beautiful, loving, gracious Jesus. Jesus, whose every word, every word that came from his mouth was the living word. He was the living word. He was the word made flesh. When Jesus opened his mouth, it was pure life, pure spirit, pure healing, pure miracles. The kingdom of heaven came from his mouth, it came from his countenance, it came from his hands, it came from his actions, from head to toe. He had never sinned. It was God as in a human body that was living, the living Torah, the living word of God. And they spat upon him. And they, then they covered his face. They put a sack over his head and then they began to beat him. They began to hit him. Which by the way, you know, when you put a sack over someone's head and you can imagine that you're sitting there, you can already feel the disgusting slime of spitting that has come upon you, let alone the anger and the animosity. And now you're behind total darkness and there is somebody that rears back and all of a sudden with all their might, they take their fist and they punch you in the face. Now, the fact that he had a sack over his head that he was in darkness and could not see, not only from whom it would come, but from what direction it would come or when it would come. You know, they, as you learn different sports and athletics, whether it's even in boxing, you know, it's one of the oldest sports in the world, you know, two guys get in a ring and they're trying to knock each other's heads off and knock each other out. And, you know, by the way, I did a little boxing when I was young and little and I had two brothers and 
they were, uh, we were very close. We we're almost like triplets. They were twins and 10 months uh, younger than me. And my dad had been a boxer, and so he t wanted us to be able to know how to fight, and so we'd get in there and be hitting each other. And uh, so my dad taught us. He goes, look, when you're, you're there and you're ready to box, and he says, and you see somebody coming and they're going like that, he, he goes, don't just stand there, because if you just stand there, you're gonna get the full force of that punch. He said, but when you see it coming, you give way to it. You go with it. And by seeing it, anticipating it, and kind of going away from it, you can take a lot of the power of that punch away. But when you cannot see that it's coming, and you don't know from what direction or when it's going to come, you're just a sitting duck, and all of a sudden the full force of that punch comes to you. Well, it's not only in a sport like boxing, but even in the sport of football, another sport that I love. And, you know, playing quarterback, which when I was young and playing Pop Warner and in high school, I played the quarterback and I happened to be right-handed, which a lot of quarterbacks are right-handed as you get ready to throw it out. And when, but when you go from being, you know, one thing to be in Pop Warner, be in high school, it's another thing when you go to the level of professional athletes, <laughs> And there's a defensive lineman that maybe weighs 285 pounds, and he's on your, what they call, blind side. And so you're a quarterback, and you're trying to read, and you're getting ready to throw to a receiver, but they say they're, a quarterback who's right-handed has a blind side. And there was a quarterback, professional quarterback, named Joe Theismann, who was right-handed and he was getting ready to pass and there was a defensive lineman that came from his blind side, but because Joe Theismann could not see him, he came and crushed him and, and fractured his leg. Uh, and all of a sudden, it, you know, it caused the sport to change and all of a sudden they started talking about, you better have somebody that's gonna be blocking on the left side of the line uh, because that's your, the quarterback's blind spot if he's a right-handed quarterback. Because it, it devastated, I mean, it just literally destroyed Joe Theismann's leg, his career was ended, uh, it was brutal. And, and then later they even made a film uh, about a very famous professional athlete and the story related to him, and the name of the movie is Blindside. Well, think about Jesus who's got this sack over his head, and they're taking, apparently, turns coming up with the full brunt of their fist, and he doesn't anticipate it, he doesn't see it, he doesn't know when it's going to come, and they just start pounding and pounding and pounding away. There's no ability for Jesus to respond or have any cushion from this. And all of a sudden, there, there are now uh, cuts, there are abrasions, then there is bruising, and before long there is swelling that is going on all over Jesus' head. We're getting ready in a few moments to partake in communion. And Jesus said, when you do this, when you have this meal, here, this bread is my body which was broken for you. He said, remember me. <laughs> Jesus wants us to remember 
what he did and what he experienced and the cost of our salvation. Obviously, salvation is a gift to us. We cannot earn it. We cannot deserve it. It's a gift that is given to us, but it was not free. It cost Jesus greatly. It cost his life. And I just want to say to you as we you know, share together in the communion meal and you remember Jesus and what he suffered and how he was spat upon, how he was beaten, that all of this he endured, how could he possibly endure all of that? What possibly could move him and motivate him to endure such shame, such humiliation, such violence? He did all of that, and here's what drove him. Here's the passion, the heart of the Father that was echoed in the heart of the Son. Yes, Father, not my will, thy will be done. I am willing. Lo, here it is written in the volume of the book, I have come to do thy will, O God. He endured this because of how deeply, passionately, intensely he loves you and that he loves me. And then they were saying, prophesy. Oh, you're the Messiah, the great prophet. Prophesy. Who was it that just hit you? Well, if you know anything about Jesus, he had all of the gifts of the Spirit, he knew things. Nathaniel, he saw Nathaniel beforehand, even meeting him. I saw you sitting under a fig tree. You're a man with no guile. Whoa! Nathaniel said, You must be the Messiah. And Jesus said, Just because I knew that, you'll see greater things than these. But what I'm saying is, Jesus probably did know. Prophesied to us, he knew them, he knew each one of them. And I'm sure he was praying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. There's another scripture from Isaiah that paints a picture for us in Isaiah 52 verse 14. And it says this, just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured. So this is after they have had their time beating him and buffeting him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. I want you to think that Jesus, especially his head, was so marred when they got done doing to him what they would. And remember, they think he's a blasphemer, they think he's a liar, they think that he has you know, claim something that is not true and, and they're just spewing their hatred toward him. But when they got done, you could not, and finally they took the bag or the sack off of his head. And what Isaiah saw, now Peter witnessed, that you could not recognize Jesus as a man. They had also pulled his beard and plucked his beard from his face and his face swollen, contusions, bruises and literally they, you could not recognize where are the features of a human face. You could not recognize him as a man or even as a human being. And Isaiah goes on to prophesy, and he's speaking prophetically of those who were there and witnessing this, which was done to Jesus of Nazareth. 
And he says, we hid, as it were, our faces from him. That is, looking at Jesus after they had done this was so shocking of an experience. Just on a human level, you couldn't stand to look at it. You just wanted to turn your eyes away from it. Sadly, you know, there are police and fire and others who have gone to maybe an accident and suddenly you come upon the scene and as you draw near, you see a mangled body or human being that metal and weight have destroyed and you just wince and you turn your eyes away because you cannot bear it. That is a description of Jesus and what they did to him. And by the way, this is before we actually get to the cross and the nails and the crown of thorns. But this is what Jesus has done for you and I. Well, let's close and get ready for communion in just a moment. Let's go to the next and final life lesson. This ends Matthew chapter 26, and we're gonna follow Peter now. And we discover that Peter finds himself following Jesus, but he's not with Jesus. Peter, who has denied the Lord, is following afar. And we also find that he is warming himself by the enemy's fire. So beginning in Matthew 26, verse 69, we read, now Peter sat outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him saying, hey, you also were with Yeshua, Jesus of Galilee. But Peter denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you are saying. And when he had gone out to the gateway, so he moved from where he was, Another young girl saw him and said to those who were there, this fellow also was with Yeshua of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth. But again, he denied and then he swore with an oath. I do not know the man. Notice here, there's an exclamation point. He's yelling, he's shouting this. I don't know the man. He's terrified because of what has just happened to Jesus. He's following, but from afar. And a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, surely you also are one of them, for your speech betrays you. You have an accent. That's the people that live up near Galilee. And then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. Immediately, a rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the word Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And so Peter went out, and he was pierced, and he wept bitterly. We read in the Gospel of Mark, and this is where I want to bring it uh, home to us, Chapter 14, verse 54, it says, but Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Can I take just a moment and say that there may be someone who is watching this, listening to this, and maybe it's only been recently since this coronavirus, this pandemic, uh, that has gripped the world, and you have been drawn to look up and to wonder, is God somewhere in the midst of this? Uh, is this is it a sign 
you have spiritual roots. Maybe like Peter, you were raised to hear the truth, but you have found yourself following from afar. You're not really walking with the Lord. You're not really seeking the Lord, but you've just recently found yourself following from afar. And then you, when you follow afar, you find yourself warming yourself by the enemy's fire. So you're with, you're kind of outside the community of family of God and the believers, and the next thing you know, you're warming yourself, but you're with the very enemies responsible for Jesus' face and how he is being treated. And I just want to say to you, my heart goes out to Peter. Um, Peter, man, you, could he more have royally blown it than this? Lord, though all of those, the other disciples, I will not forsake you. I'll be there for you. I will even die for you. And Jesus said, Peter, no, you won't. In fact, you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows twice. And boom, that's exactly what happens. My heart goes out to Peter because I see Jesus and his heart went out to Peter. He loved Peter and Peter's boast was a boast of pride. It was a boast in his flesh. Oh, I would never be like that. I would never do that. I would never deny you, Lord. But I have to admit myself, I have been in the same place as Peter. I have done things I said I would never do. My deeds have gone against what I know and believe in my heart. I have denied Christ. I've shamed him. And I say, Lord, have mercy upon me. Lord, forgive me. I have failed. My flesh has failed. And isn't it true that we're all guilty? We've all had greater confidence in our spirituality or in our abilities or in our strength. And I, I'm so glad for Peter. It's almost like the contrast between Judas, who we talked of recently, who, who betrayed Jesus but never repented from it. Peter, who denies Jesus, but who is forgiven. Who Jesus says, I know what's gonna happen, and I know the devil is trying to take you out, but I prayed for you, Peter. And you will be restored, and you will be healed, and you will go and strengthen my sheep, and you will feed my sheep. And I love that. No matter what you have done or how you have failed or how many mistakes you have made, because this is what the enemy wants to do is, you know, I, I abandoned my faith, I've disgraced the Lord, I've gone through this horrible divorce, I went through this breakup, I went through this bankruptcy, I have failed, I have said one thing and done another, and it's too late for me, and I can never come back. That is a lie from the enemy. You can be forgiven. You can be healed. And Peter is the great encouragement. You can be restored. Not only restored, not only forgiven, used by God. Peter became a leader within the first century church. He became a model and an example of human failure, but then honest repentance, and then restoration, and then being mightily used of God. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. 
Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.